Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you who have remained faithful and not gone exodus on us this weekend. It's, uh, I was afraid we were going to get 30 people here and 300 screens, so if you're one of the 300, I'm making that up, obviously. But anyway, if you're watching in a, on live stream this morning, we're glad you're dropping in and taking a peek and joining us for worship this morning. I was chuckling uh, when Shannon was mentioning about uh, having supplies out there for the kids. I had a dream the other night where it's like, Brad, you better go like 15 minutes and cut it short because the kids are in here. And then when she mentioned that uh, we have supplies and resources out there so that if the kids get fidgety, uh, here's my word to you kids, if your parents get fidgety, go out and get the stuff for them and they'll be good for the rest of the morning as well. Um, Let me also add my thoughts. Memorial Day weekend is one that, uh, like a lot of holidays, are ones that are important to us because they remember uh, the sacrifice uh, that individuals have made for us. And sometimes we need to reflect on that and remember the freedom that we have uh, is not cheap. And for all those of you that have served uh, or have family that have served, uh, realize I'm overlapping holidays here a little bit, but I think it's an important sacrifice and commitment that people have made, and we greatly appreciate uh, you doing that. The, uh, I'm going to invite you to bow with me and pray, and then we'll step into the scriptures this morning together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who sent your Son to make the ultimate sacrifice where he gave himself up in order to satisfy the wrath of God so that that would open the door for us to be come back into your family and to know your acceptance. We thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to remind ourselves of that in a very unique way as we step into the Gospel of Mark and continue our journey through it. We pray that your spirit would continue to be the teacher in our life and instruct us in the things that need to be particularly relevant to our own journeys. And we just commit our time to you and we thank you in Christ's name, amen. If I asked you the question, do you feel like you're a pretty ordinary person? Anybody vote for that? I mean, there are some people that would say, I think I'm an extraordinary uh, person. Uh, the rest of you just haven't figured it out, but I don't often getting people tooting their own horn that well. Uh, but the thing in life and ministry is that we often compare ourselves to other people. We see people with certain skills and abilities and talents, and we look at that and went, wow, it'd be great to be able to do that, but that's not me. Uh, We look at other individuals who have skills and training in other areas and be like, wow, I'd love to be able to do that, but that's not me. The danger with that is that it's easy for us to do one of two things, even to think more about ourselves than we really should, or we end up devaluing who we are and we don't count in the scheme of life. I'm here, I show up, but I'm so ordinary that I really couldn't make a difference. I don't know how many of you have... uh, taken upon yourself to watch the new Christian movie that's come out called The Chosen. Uh, Someone gave us a couple of CDs this last week. It's actually uh, a group of Christians have gotten together to try to write about the backstories of a lot of the people that were with Jesus. So it's backstories about the disciples, uh, Mary Magdalene, and all the others. And what it tries to do is, is to give you some insight into their journey. I was uh, watching a few of the episodes this morning and the episode four is about where um, four men go out fishing at night 
Uh, and the storyline behind it is interesting because the picture they give is that Simon has got himself in some financial trouble and he's trying to figure out a way to get at it and he's on a deadline because he feels like the Roman authorities are going to arrest him and so he goes out and fishes all night. And his brother and, and uh, others come out to help him try to catch fish and they don't and of course in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, they pull up to the shores, and uh, depending on the version, uh, you look at it, Jesus is there teaching people, and uh, this is where Jesus calls Simon and, and the others to follow him. If you look at the passage in Luke, which we'll touch on in a minute, the, it's filled with all kinds of details that you don't see in Matthew and in Mark. Mar, they're very, Matthew and Mark are very brief about the whole thing. Luke goes into all kinds of details where Jesus tells them to go out and cast their nets back into the water. And uh, they catch this enormous load of fish. And uh, it's just, it's a fascinating to look at the backstories. But I believe what they're trying to do is they're trying to communicate to us in this movie that they've put together, and it's a series obviously, is that Jesus called ordinary people. He didn't call people who were superstars or the rich and famous or the ones who had all the talent. It, it, he called ordinary individuals who were in the midst of life trying to figure out how to solve their problems and deal with their marriages and figure out how to deal with their own brokenness. And if there's anything that we want to do this morning is to remind ourselves that one of the most fundamental elements of the mission of Christ began with him choosing ordinary individuals to be with him in the mission of the gospel. The mission of the kingdom, as Christ was going to reach into the life of Israel, he was gathering individuals to be in that journey with him, not just to reach out to Israel, but to prepare them for something even bigger. Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20 says this. Jesus was passing along the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And they were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed Jesus." Now, for many of us, this is a pretty pedestrian text. Jesus is walking along the seashore, and uh, all of a sudden, he sees these men. And it's kind of an interesting story, because if you start reading in the Gospel of Mark and read this, the first thing that I heard growing up is that, man, this is phenomenal. Jesus walks up, sees these two people that he's probably never met before, and simply gives them a calling, and they drop everything, and they follow him. And so there was almost seemed to be this aura of miraculous, mesmerizing invitation that Jesus gave that, that was like hard to believe because how did he even know these people? Why is it the drop of one invitation would then these men just drop everything that they're doing? But I want to suggest to you that there's more to the story than that, and part of what I want to do is paint a little bit of the backstory, because what you don't see is that Jesus has likely interacted with these people a number of times already. In fact, if I was going to make a list, here would be the list of about 10 things that have already happened. John chapter 1, and most of these you will see come out of the Gospel of John. John 1 through John chapter about 5 or 6 
is really the story behind the story. It gives us details about Jesus' life before you get to Mark chapter one, verse 16. So he's introduced to several of the disciples, we won't go into the detail, in John 1, 35, that Jesus does his first miracle in Cana, and several of the disciples, these disciples went with Jesus on this excursion, so they all got invited to the wedding, were told that he had his disciples with him, and they went with him and saw him perform this miracle at the wedding of turning water into wine. Uh, Jesus is at Capernaum with his family and disciples. The first cleansing where he goes in and sort of tears up the temple uh, it happens in uh, John chapter two. Uh, I'm, yes, uh, Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, John chapter three, has likely happened even before Jesus makes this calling to these ordinary fishermen to follow him This is probably, they were part of this discussion and heard Nicodemus come and ask this profound theological question um, revolving around being born again. Jesus' uh, ministry, uh, where it transitions from John to Jesus and he starts becoming more popular than John, probably follows this. And then there's Jesus traveling through Samaria and he meets the woman at the well. And we know that his disciples were with him. Likely what's happened is that they would go on these short little short-term mission trips. They'd follow Jesus, they got invited to real life events, they had people come to him, and they were exposed to the things that Jesus was trying to do. And all of this takes place before we get to Mark chapter one, verse 16. Jesus starts proclaiming the kingdom of God, that was Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus heals the official son in Cana, And that becomes part of the storyline. Jesus is rejected in Nazareth. That's the statement where it talks about a prophet has no honor in his own town. And then Jesus moves to Capernaum. That's the segment in Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter four. And after all that happens and they have all this exposure, then Jesus is walking along the seashore and he sees these people that he's been hanging with. And regardless of the backstory, these we're told some things about these individuals that we don't know. So let me catch you up to a few things before we actually dive into kind of the, the, the meat of the message. Simon and Andrew were brothers. Simon was, uh, had a fishing business with his brother. Uh, we don't know how successful or unsuccessful it was, but that was part of their home business. They, they were, lots of people like their own home businesses, and it was kind of the trade of that particular family. And there's all kinds of trades that went on, and a lot of them were family businesses. They clearly had servants and others that would participate. We know that Simon was married. Uh, We don't often think about these things when we're reading the storyline, because, like, who in their right mind would let their husband wander off and go on all these short-term mission trips without them? Like, you know, I want to see the country, too. Um, But we're told that he was married, and we know because Jesus uh, healed his mother-in-law. Well, the only way that happens is if you marry the daughter. That, I mean, we know that, but sometimes we forget about those things. And so he had family to deal with. We're not told too much other things, but he, was, he had a family. He, he had to deal with those things. Lived near Bethsaida, which is the north shore of Lake Galilee, and then later moved to Capernaum. Uh, Simon was his brother, helped again with the fishing and partnered with the sons of Zebedee and often some of the ventures that they had. And of course, there's all kinds of little nuances that we start to rummage through trying to figure out who's connected to who and how. But the point is, is that these are ordinary individuals that Jesus connects with. 
They're, they're not superstars. They're not high on the social ladder. We know that Matthew was a tax collector. Didn't rank really high in anybody's book. Not with the Romans, other than the money they could collect. Certainly not with the Jews. They were kind of like the scum of the earth. Now, Matthew isn't in this discussion, but he is part of this group of ordinary people trying to figure out their ordinary lives, pay the bills, and look after their families. Now, just as some background so you know it, there's really three texts that talk about this particular event. One is Matthew 4, 18 through 22, Mark 1, 16 through 20, and then the other one is Luke 5. And Luke 5 is the one that gives a lot more details than what we have in these two accounts. In fact, I've told you here, Matthew and Mark are almost identical in the way they account this. Very short and sweet to the point, no extra details, no talking about any miracles, just wants them to know as he writes to the people that he's writing to is, look, Jesus walking along the shore, if there was other things that happened, they just ignored it. And it's not uncommon when you look at the Gospels, these are literally eyewitness accounts of the same kinds of things. Either they personally saw them or they had a record of what happened. But it's like anything, when you have four different perspectives and people looking at the same situation, you will always have slightly different accounts because they focus in on different things. I, I sort of toyed with the idea of someone uh, creating a, a, a kind of a distraction this morning and I thought with kids up here it'd be great. Just have like kids come up and do all kinds of crazy things and then have them sit down and then try to get you to tell me what just happened here. Well, if you're a parent of one of the kids, you're gonna go, well, I know what that kid was doing. I don't know what any other kid was doing, but I know what that one was doing and you're either horrified because they acted very badly in front of everybody and make us look bad as parents or you're very proud of them because they did exactly what they were told. Now, how you, would, how you would perceive that event might be very, very different, even though you're looking at exactly the same thing. So in Luke, we have all this discussion, as I mentioned, that Jesus teaches from Simon's boat. Uh, he instructs Simon to go fishing, even after they had fished all night. That's not part of the Mark passage that we just read. They get this huge catch of fish. Simon asks Jesus to leave because he's a sinful person, which would indicate there's more going on in his life than than uh, we probably realize, and Jesus calls these men to follow him. In fact, the details of that are so different than the other two passages, there's some uh, commentary people who would say this is actually a different event, that Jesus had called these men once, and just like they went on these short-term mission journeys, they went back to their homes and went and continued to do their trades and carpentry and fishing and whatever, and then the account in Luke is the second time that Jesus goes and runs into a very similar situation but then calls them a second time. Well, I don't wanna get in the weeds of that at the moment. What we do need to know is that when Jesus goes by the Sea of Galilee, he calls these men to follow him. And as we look at this, clearly Jesus has a mission to set himself up as the Messiah for Israel. And he's calling these men to be involved in the process. And as we think of it, there's three things that really strike me about this. Jesus came to ordinary individuals, ordinary men, and that's who he was going to choose. Jesus called ordinary men to follow him. And Jesus then is basically gonna make a commitment to ordinary individuals to help them to be on mission 
as the movie would say, that he's got a job much bigger than simply his trade. And he's calling these individuals, and they're going to do something a little bit more radical. They're going to literally follow him everywhere at this point. They're abandoning their trades and going to follow Jesus wherever he goes. But it's these three things that I want to remind you of in the extent of how much it does apply to us. Clearly, Jesus is targeting Israel. But I find it fascinating that one of the first strategic things after getting to know these people and presenting himself in a wedding and going through Samaria and trying to break down the, the ethnic barriers between the Jews and the Samaritan and leading his men through those experiences, the first thing he does when he really wants to get this thing focused in is he picks ordinary people to be on mission with him. You may not think of yourself as extraordinary or talented or gifted, but if you're ordinary, then you're perfectly usable for the Savior. Because I think there's an element where Jesus wants us to rely on him, not our talents. He wants us to trust him, not ourselves. He wants us to follow his will, not my creativity and ingenuity. And as we step into this, we're reminded in a very profound way that one of the heart of Jesus is taking ordinary individuals and calling them to an extraordinary life. Now, I don't know how you think about that, but the idea is, is that Jesus does it in such a way that anybody who has a heart and joy to really believe in who Jesus is and willing to surrender to him can be used by, by Christ. And so at the heart of this, Jesus came to ordinary men. The, the idea of this is that Jesus didn't set up a school and call them into two years of training. He went to where they lived and he went to where they worked and he moved alongside where they were. He, there's no reason in the world to think that they would just drop everything because to this point, they probably didn't know anything about him. I mean, they had experienced, they traveled around. When Simon uh, finds out about this, they're all dealing with, is this really the Messiah? Is this the person that we've been praying about all these years? But Jesus steps into their world and touches them and calls them in the world that they're living. In this particular case, Jesus is going to call them out of those particular trades and occupations, and they're going to follow him sort of like a full-time missionaries. But I, I think we have to remember that in terms of our own life and style, while we give something up or not, there is a job that is greater and bigger than simply our jobs and our occupations and even our families that God wants us on mission about. As he begins to uh, work through this, I, I, he sees, as even Simon says, we've been at this all night. If you look at the uh, Luke passage. The point is, they are living in a culture where they value hard work and discipline. They have to be on top of their stuff because they have to provide for their families literally on a daily basis. We know nothing at times of that kind of culture. Our great-great-grandparents might have lived in something similar to it, but that's not. It's the, the, the whole adage today is work smarter, not harder. So our whole themes don't fit the paradigm that they're talking about. I, I remember we have some friends that are back. They live in Washington now. And uh, they had a little dilemma that one their kids, one of their kids, a daughter, when they graduated from high school, uh, couldn't find a job, didn't want to have a job, just lived at home. And she's, I think, still living at home. 
And at one point, she talked about being a missionary, but technically never really had a job, never, never had had a real job and stuck to it. And we all heard when the, she wanted to be a missionary, we were kind of like, how does that make any sense? How, do, how does a person who's never learned how to work or be involved or be committed all of a sudden now wants to be a missionary? And we all shook our heads saying, well, that's never gonna happen. Why would a person wanna be a missionary if they've never even, as far as I knew at that point, never shared Jesus with anybody, wasn't involved in the church, didn't, whatever. And, and the dilemma was is that we kind of suspected they wanted to be supported by people, go to someplace exotic, and have someone pay for it. But, so the idea is, Jesus didn't just pick lazy people. He picked people who were busy and hardworking and were, had all kinds of responsibilities and financial obligations and all kinds of stuff. They were ordinary individuals just like you and I. And yet he taps them on the shoulder at some point and he says, listen, I can do something in you and I can get you to come and follow me and do something not just ordinary but extraordinary. And he does that in many ways, even for us today. The the heart of this is that Jesus came and stepped into ordinary people's lives and he changed them forever. They didn't necessarily change occupations from being an accountant to being a missionary. But there was something that they discovered that God wanted to do in them that was greater than simply their job or their family. The second element of this is that Jesus called ordinary men to follow an extraordinary person. The first thing Jesus says is, I want you to follow me. He didn't first talk about the task or the the end result or the responsibilities or the job description. He talked about the first and foremost thing that I want you to do is I want you to simply follow me. It it sounds kind of unique, but Jesus really was calling them to prioritize this really extraordinary relationship with the Savior over their normal sibling relationships. Meaning, if you remember that some of them are related to one another, they're brothers, you know, I don't know if you grew up with brothers and sisters, sometimes that doesn't always go well. There's always this sense of competition about who's better and who's first and who's more talented and all the rest of it kind of thing. Now, a lot of families still get along great, but there's always this kind of family interaction that can either be highly destructive or distracting. And at the heart of this, Jesus walks into these people and saying, listen, the relationship that I think that needs to transcend, even sibling and family, needs to be me. I want you to come follow me. And so they may have to make hard decisions at this point that they were going to abandon family businesses and didn't probably know how they were gonna provide for them and saying, We're gonna follow Jesus, this is the Messiah. This is something that our people have been looking for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Jesus called them to follow him. Now that's not really any different than it is today. When we surrender to God through faith in Christ, it isn't just to get saved and get my ticket to heaven. What is inherent within the nature of, of salvation is where God says to us, follow my son. Because you are gonna discover in this world, there's lots of Christians that love the idea that they're saved and forgiven, get to go to heaven, but the only person they're following is themselves. 
that they still want to be in control of all the stuff that they're doing. And, and you can tell at times that they put their job or their hobbies or their family or whatever far above the reality of who Christ is. Not that they have to abandon all those things, but comparatively speaking, Jesus takes a fairly low rung on the ladder compared to the time and the energy and the effort that we put into so many other things. But in the simple reality of what Jesus is doing with his men as he seeks to reach out to Israel, is he says, listen, I want you to come and I want you to follow me. And there are a lot of Christians today who are doing a lot of things. They might be serving in programs, they sit on boards, they're on committees, they might do everything from teaching to small groups to whatever kind of thing, but there's always the danger that we, we do that at the expense of following Jesus. We're doing things for Jesus, but we're not following Jesus. Now you might say, well that sounds stupid, Brad. If you're doing a Bible study, then you're obviously following Jesus. You, really? That would seem to make sense. But listen, just because it's a spiritual activity doesn't mean in my heart that I get up every morning and saying, listen, the greatest passion of my life is I want to keep my eyes on Jesus. I want to focus my faith upon him. Remember the First John passage? He who fixes their eyes on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If I'm not living a pure life, a holy life, I might be doing lots of things for Jesus, but I'm not following Jesus. And so at the heart of Christianity, if we want to jump all over what Jesus is doing in Israel with his men, is that one of the heart of Christianity is about following Jesus. And this is why the Gospels ought to be some of the biggest breaths of fresh air is because even though we get theology from Paul and we get information and truths and principles and doctrines from Peter and Jude, Timothy, the glorious reality of the Gospels is we get to look at Christ. We get to see him in flesh and blood touching ordinary lives and seeing how they came to the reality that this isn't just so-and-so's brother. This isn't just another person. This is Messiah. This is God in the flesh. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, you might be religious, you might be a believer, you might claim to be a Christian, you might be doing lots of things for him, but are you following Jesus? And sometimes we can tell because every once in a while we'll stop and we'll go, man, I'm busy doing all these things. I haven't spent any time in prayer. My, my devotional life has been snack food. I, I grab a verse, memorize it, and off I go, and I forget it before I get out the door. I don't, I don't really meditate. I haven't learned to study his word. I haven't memorized anything in ages because I'm so busy doing stuff and prioritizing so many things that that's kind of slipped out from under us. And even those things can be doing things because that's what good Christians do rather than staring into the face of Jesus and allowing his spirit to cultivate a love relationship with him that just overflows into my marriage and into my kids and into my families and into my work and into my neighbors. Especially the times that we live in, life has its pressures and people are feeling very overwhelmed by all the voices they're hearing and all the demands that are on their life and how life is not working out the way they had planned it. 
And it's easy, even as Christians, for us to get frustrated and bitter and discouraged and, and this isn't working. And the simple fact of the matter is it's not supposed to work. It's supposed to be Jesus that we're following. He hasn't created a self-help book to make us more successful in life. He's created Jesus that we're to follow in his footsteps. And so the question this morning is, is, I don't care how much theology you know, I don't know how much biblical doctrine you know, I don't care how many right answers you know, the question I want you to ask and answer is, are you following Jesus? Because we can do all kinds of things for him and leave him completely out of the equation of my heart. And so Jesus goes and calls them. The other thing I want to note here is that whenever we get into these discussions about God's call on our life, it inevitably gets to the point, well, what God calls you to do is different than what he calls me to do. Everything's unique. Uh, we don't live in the same house. We don't work in the same place. So the, what God calls me to do in those things is completely different than what he might have you do. Well, I get that. That's fine. But the, but the danger is, is we skip over the part that everyone should be doing. Because if you're not following Jesus, it, the rest of it doesn't really matter. He might, what he has you do and maybe taking a, a person at work out for lunch to encourage them might be different than me sitting down with a buddy and getting in their face and challenging them that, hey, you're out of line. That, of course, is always going to be different because of the people and the circumstances that you're living in. But the thing that ought to be true for every single one of us is that his call in my life means I'm following Jesus. If you don't start there, nothing else is gonna matter. And so the heartbeat of what Jesus does here is the heartbeat of what we need to learn. When Jesus told his disciples, listen, come, follow me. I think that still resonates in Christianity today is that he calls us and says, Hey, this isn't just a benefit package so you can get to heaven. I want you to follow me into the world and become, as he told those men, fishers of men. Now, of course, you're a mechanic. You go, what does that have to do with anything? Well, we could rephrase it any way you want. Jesus, of course, used real-life situations to communicate the message of the gospel. If you're a mechanic, follow Jesus and help repair people's broken lives. If you're an accountant, help people calculate the cost of the direction of a broken life apart from Christ. I don't know, we could do this all day if you wanted, but if you're a kid, help your friends find joy and happiness by following Jesus. If you like to play video games, help them to discover that winning at Halo isn't total success with Jesus. We're not here to kill people, we're here to save people. Whatever context helps you think about it, remember that God calls ordinary, basic, plain individuals who are dealing with life and finances and family and all the other clutter that's there, and he taps them on the shoulders and he says, follow me. And that's what he says to you this morning. And then Jesus makes a statement that makes it clear that he's committed to doing the hard work of investing in these people. You come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
Now, none of these guys have probably been through rabbinical school and hadn't learned all the theology and all that kind of stuff. In fact, once Jesus disappears, one of the interesting things is the, the, the crowds around them, the Pharisees and scribes, don't say, wow, these guys are really educated like the Apostle Paul, because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees and a scribe of scribes. He had all the biblical and theological and Old Testament training you could get, but a lot of these other guys didn't get that. They were tradesmen. But they did know that they had been hanging out with Jesus. And so when Jesus calls them, he says, listen, I'm going to invest in you in such a way that I will help you to be everything that I want you to be. You're not going to lack anything. If you follow me and you listen to me and you're a teachable person, I will help you become everything you want me to be. It doesn't have to be like those people over there. It doesn't have to be like that person there. You don't have to compete with your brother. You follow me and I will help you become a fisher of men. And so Jesus put it on himself, the responsibility, to help them to be exactly what he wanted them to be to accomplish the very thing that he wanted them to accomplish. Now that doesn't mean sitting around like a bum and hoping it all soaks in by osmosis. That's kind of the new learning technique, right? Isn't that what we do? Hey, I want to be on fire for Jesus, but like, I don't feel like it. So like, Jesus, you know, if he wants me to do it, then... Like, he needs to give me the feelings and the fire to go and do it. Well, that'd be cool. But Jesus didn't say, follow your emotions, follow your common sense. He said, follow me. So when I instruct you, and we're going to see this as we go through Mark. Jesus is going to say, here, we're going to do this. And they're going like, what are you, nuts? That's never going to happen. And their feelings would have shut it down in a heartbeat because they would have said, that's ridiculous or it's impossible. And Jesus put them through some hard, real-life crucibles to teach them what faith really meant. But they had to be teachable. They had to say, all right, if you're leading, we're going to follow. And there's times that it was really inconvenient. It was problematic. It seems conflicted. It put them at risk. They sometimes felt vulnerable. They often felt that they were in harm's way. So Jesus says, I'm not calling you to follow your common sense or your emotion. You're here to follow me, and if you will follow me, I will help you become what I need you to be. And as much as us would love it to be managers and all this kind of things and CEOs and business people, that's not what Jesus said. I'll help you fish for people. In the chosen, the statement that Jesus makes to the children and then makes it a couple of times as he says, because the kids say, well, like, what are you here for? Like, what's your purpose? Well, he grew up being a carpenter because that's what dad did. That was his trade. But he says, my job is much bigger than just my trade. That's a great statement. And so the challenge for most people it's kind of like, wow. Yeah. Jesus, I know what you're asking me to do, but like, that's really inconvenient because I got plans. I mean, they live in a different culture, but think of it if Jesus came and tapped you on the shoulder and said, I want you to follow me, it'd be like, you know, my, my schedule, I've got my ideal week and it's kind of full and scheduled right now. It's like, I can fit you in next Thursday. 
But the unique thing is that if you're going to keep your eyes and follow Jesus, there's things that he's going to bring into your life that are inconvenient. They're not going to be timely. They're going to ask you to change your schedule. Isn't that some of the things that we hate the most, right? Changing your schedule. Because our schedules become all, they, they become really good because they help us be more effective and efficient, but they also become a problem because they become the ditch that we stay in for the rest of our life. But Jesus was committed to changing ordinary men to becoming extraordinary servants of Jesus. And he wanted them to be committed to something bigger than just their occupations. He wanted them to be committed to something more than just what their careers were. He wanted them to be committed to something more than just their hobbies. It didn't, for some of them, that meant abandoning some of those things and focusing their life. And you and I both know we can clutter up our lives so we're full from stem to stern, Sunday through Sunday. And so the idea of changing that would be ludicrous because God would never ask me to do that because like I prayed about it and you know, here's what I think I need to do. And Jesus has a, a nasty habit of interrupting our life plan to say, here's my purpose. So out of the ordinary, Jesus wants them to do extraordinary things. They won't become spiritual supermen, they'll just be faithful servants who are following Jesus. There was a quote that Bill Maury has in The Way of the Alongsider. I put it in here because I think it's very apropos for us. God is looking for ministry amateurs. See, the danger in all of this is going, well, Brad, you've done like 18 years of post-high school education, so that's your job. And technically, if I want to get into that discussion, no, it's not, but... But he said, God wants amateurs. This should be an encouragement to anyone wanting to participate in the Great Commission. The word amateur comes from the Latin word meaning lover. Amateurs are not people who necessarily lack skill or training. Amateurs can often be highly skilled. They do what they do, not for pay, but out of the sheer love and joy for it, of it. And I want to encourage you that that love and joy begins with following Jesus. Because the extent of our love and our joy for Jesus is sort of the doorway to following him wherever he takes me. But, but that's, that's where kind of we've got all the switches in our life. All the default switches are right at that doorway. It's going like, ah, no, I haven't got time for that. Nah, you know, that, that's not really what my career is going to be, so I don't want to do that. You want me to make time for these people? They're kind of turkeys. Why would I do, you know? And so we can create this whole preconceived idea about what we think God wants us to do and literally miss how God wants us to do it because we're too busy doing things for him rather than following Jesus. There is a story that I read this week. A gal by the name of Patty White Bull of Albuquerque, New Mexico was in a coma for 16 years. Apparently this was a true story. It came out of uh, ABC News, it was way back in 1999, so some of you would never have heard of this, of course. But she came out of a coma after 16 years, on Christmas Day, in fact. She awoke and returned to her normal activities. She dressed herself, walked with, without support, um, talked in complete sentences, and unlike most common patients who awaken gradually, uh, White Bull became fully conscious and showed no signs of any kind of mental or physical disability from being in a coma that long. 
The neurologist, Randy Chestnut of Oregon Health Science University, said that her awakening was extraordinary but not out of the realm of possibility. He went on to explain that he speculates that the decreased brain stimulation may have caused, that may have ca uh, been caused by a kind of brainstem blockage that finally shifted. While Bull may have been interacting with people in subtle ways that went unnoticed, he suggested adding, maybe on Christmas Day people noticed more than they ever had before and that made it open for the dramatic recovery. You know what I sort of fear about that story? Is that I don't want to get 10 years down the road and feel like I've been in a spiritual coma and not really awake to following Jesus. Because there's a real danger that there's a lot of Christians who are in fact unconscious and very asleep when it comes to keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus and following him. Sometimes it's because our lives are so busy that we have got no room there for him to speak into our life and drop the things that we're doing and follow him. I want to suggest to you that the life that Jesus calls to us to do is much bigger than our jobs and our career, our sibling relationships, even our families. It by no means is trying to suggest we have to abandon those, but it means we need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ to take him to the very heart of every one of those things. I had to ask myself the question, Brad, are, are you in a spiritual coma thinking you're doing lots of things for God but really haven't got your eyes on Jesus? Or are the very things you're doing, are they because you have your eyes fixed on Jesus? It's hard for me to think that if I'm doing exactly the same thing I did even a year ago, then I might be more stuck in my rut than I am listening to his voice. But I want to propose to you this morning, above everything else, that when Jesus walked along that shoreline, he looked at four ordinary men struggling to make a living and make ends meet and deal with their occupations and their families and trying to provide for them and dealing with the financial pressures and all the things that go with it. And he tapped him on the shoulder and said, as of this day forward, I want you to follow me. And maybe that's what the Spirit of God might be whispering in your ear this morning, is to say, listen, of all the things that you do in life, maybe unlike the disciples in terms of his mission with Israel, that he's going to ask you to just drop everything. But he says, you need to drop the control of your life and you need to trust me. You need to believe that I can shape your life in a direction that will have eternal consequences rather than all the creative, successful plans that you think you're going to do. But the, the assurance that I see in this text is God, Christ is committed at the very outset of his ministry of taking ordinary people and turning them into extraordinary servants because they will simply follow Jesus. You don't have to dream big dreams. You don't have to be talented and big, build a big empire. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to compare yourself to others. All you have to do is follow Jesus. Are you walking in the way that he walked? Are you purifying yourself as he is pure? Are you living by faith and trusting that whether 
I understand everything in front of me or not, he does, and I'm still going to follow. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for something so simple that we might just read through it and not even pay attention to it. But there's something unique and we might say extraordinary about Jesus starting his mission by choosing other people that he can teach and train. In fact, in many ways, that's really our heartbeat here at Oak Grove is that we move alongside ordinary individuals just like us and we learn to encourage and build into each other's lives so that we become followers of Jesus. That's the nature of being disciples. And so, Father, I pray that no matter what we do, moving from this day forward, that one of the highest priorities of our life is that we follow Jesus, that we follow him. We follow him in our marriages, we follow him as parents, we follow him in our neighborhoods, we follow him in the workplace. We follow him whether it's with our hobbies or the things that we need to set aside. Father, no matter what, help us to respond in a very similar way, that we will follow him no matter what. For all this we pray in Christ's name, amen.